Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with the incredible timing of two teens who are being credited with saving the life of a senior. The 90-year-old was stranded on a logging road in Pender Harbor, stuck there for days with little food or water when his prayers were finally answered. Aaron MacArthur reports. Well, it's so good to see you. Yeah, thank you, thank you again. For Three men, generations apart, today greeting each other as fast friends. Two 16-year-olds saved the 90-year-old's life. Well, I, I'm so thankful. How can, I, how can I express it in words? Paul Jones was out for a drive in his new SUV looking for a shortcut up to Spippius Provincial Park. On his way back, the sandy road gave way under his tires and he was left precariously balanced. He couldn't risk having the car tip over on its side. I was going to wait for someone to, to come by because there's lots of hunters here, usually at this time of year. He waited for two nights, no water and only a handful of cashews to eat. By dinner on the third day, he was running out of time when two boys on dirt bikes passed his SUV. We weren't even going to go out for a dirt bike ride and whatever, so we decided we were going to go. And we were somewhere else, and we were debating on even going to where he was. Well, they came by at about 40 miles an hour. It was amazing. And I banged on the window, knocked on the window, and the second fellow heard me, I guess. They came just at the right moment. I was. After calling 911, Jacob rode out for water. Nolan stayed with Paul. He was in rough shape. He was laying back in, his, in the passenger seat and could barely open his eyes. And Nolan and Jacob. Ambulance crews eventually reached the trio. Everyone, including the premier, calling the boys heroes. I don't know if we should be called heroes, yeah. but you know, it's all the paramedics, RCMP, yeah. firefighters. Jones, thankful to have met his new friends, says next time he's out for a drive on a logging road, will leave a note explaining where he went. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Now to the fireworks in the legislature today. The government in the hot seat over newly released over a newly released report that reveals for the first time the involvement of the premier's office in the spending scandal. Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with more on this. Keith, this all hinges on when the premier's office was first made aware of the allegations. And according to the report, it was a lot sooner than anyone thought. Exactly, Sophie. You know, this strange scandal just keeps getting stranger. This is the latest report into the former Sergeant Arms Gary Lenz, uh, and it concludes that he lied to former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin about the removal of uh, improper removal of liquor from the legislature. But buried in the middle of this thing is the revelation for the first time that the Speaker actually forwarded the original allegations to the Premier's office four months before the public was even told about it. And not only that, but the, the report that was sent to the Premier's office was shredded by the Premier's Chief of Staff. 
half. Needless to say, that explosive information was the subject of a rather raucous and loud and aggressive question period today, pitting opposition leader Andrew Wilkinson against the Premier. The Premier of this province has stood in this House and said it's just fine for the most senior political staff appointment in this province, the Chief of Staff to the Premier, to ignore allegations of criminal wrongdoing and let it slide for four months and to pretend to the public that the Premier's office was unaware of all of these ongoing investigations for a period of four months. This is suppression of evidence. This is obstruction of justice. This is a flagrant example of the Premier's office putting its head in the sand and saying, don't look at me, I don't know what's going on. When I was advised that there were allegations of wrongdoing to the former clerk, I said, I have no responsibility for the Legislative Assembly. The Management Committee does. My responsibility is to Executive Council. It's to health care. It's to education. It's to child care. It's to transportation. It's to the people of British Columbia. We have capable members of this place, one of them sitting right beside you, that's responsible for the management of this institution. If you have no confidence in Lampsey, if you don't have no confidence in the clerk's office, then you should have participated. You should have participated in the investigation. Well, clearly Andrew Wilkinson has no confidence in Jeff Meggs, who was the chief of staff that was referred to in that clip. Mm -hmm. What is Meggs' response to all of this? Yeah, Wilkinson wants uh, Mr. Horgan to fire Meggs, but uh, uh, Jeff Meggs released a short statement just a short time ago saying, yes, he did get this report from uh, the Speaker on June 30th. Uh, yes, it did contain allegations, but he said they were unsubstantiated. There was no corroboration to the information. In any event, it wasn't government business, he said, so that's why he, uh, he shredded the document. I have a feeling this is going to come up again tomorrow. I would think. All right, thanks for that, Keith. After a, uh, after a lengthy and emotional council meeting that went into the wee hours of this morning, Port Moody Mayor Rob Vagramov has been asked to step aside and resume his leave of absence until his sexual assault case is resolved. And while Vagramov promised to take into account the input from both council and the public, Sarah McDonald joins us now to explain why there are still questions about his departure. Sarah. And Chris, the biggest one is, will he stay or will he go? That was the lingering question left unanswered after last night's extraordinary city council meeting here in Port Moody. And tonight, Mayor Rob Vagramoff is responding. Uh, all in favor uh, and opposed. And it carries... Uh, a split myself, council. Uh, but you're not leaving. And a fiercely divided city. Go, this is quickly becoming the new normal in the typically politically sleepy Port Moody. But when you came back, it wasn't about the community anymore. It was about you. Tearful councillors and a defiant mayor embattled, both bolstered by supporters. This motion is disturbing and chastised by his critics. He is not welcome in his position of power. Now Rob Vagramov's own councillors want him gone, at least for now. I would like to make it very clear, I will not be withdrawing my motion. Diana Dilworth's motion passing in part at an emotionally charged council meeting that stretched on for seven hours. Nothing has been regular since your return. Council imploring its mayor to once again leave office so long as he stands criminally charged with sexual assault. I'm not able to comment on anything that's specifically related to the legal case. 
Vagramov abruptly returning from a leave of absence last month, confident he won't be convicted. Declining an on-camera interview Wednesday, though strongly implying in writing he won't be going anywhere, and legally he doesn't have to. This person is innocent until the process is completed. Part of the reason council is calling for legal guidance when it comes to dealing with politicians facing criminal charges, while defeating a clause demanding Vegramov's resignation if he's not ultimately completely exonerated before the courts. I feel like voting on the second part, for me, is passing judgment, and I'm not going to do that until the court is out of the court is made up his mind. The future of this council and its elected leader now more uncertain and more polarized than ever. Now, one thing is for certain, this city and its council is fractured, and that is not likely to change anytime soon. Chris Vagramoff is expected back in court next month. All right, thanks, Sarah. A difficult day of testimony at the trial for Gabriel Klein. He's the man accused in a fatal stabbing at an Abbotsford High School. Today we heard from several key witnesses, including a student who survived the attack. Here's Grace Key. We can only identify the girl as E.I. She was just 14 years old at the time of the attack. Now, she was in the courtroom today as her video statement was played. E.I. and her friend Letitia Reimer were together in the rotunda looking at their phones when Gabrielle Klein came up from behind E.I. She says, I heard Letitia scream. I don't remember any pain. I don't remember what he looked like, just very mean. And I just remember running as fast as I could to the nearest classroom. E.I. says people were screaming and helping her with her wounds. She had been stabbed four times. Another witness was Ken Lachette, a teacher. Now, he walked out of his classroom after hearing screams. He saw Klein above Letitia. He says, I moved towards her, and that's when I yelled for him to get off of her. He stood up, and that's when his arm pulled out from where it was, and that's when I could see the knife. Letitia was fighting. She was pushing him off, kicking. And by the time I got to her, her hands and arms were over her face. Tearing up, he said, her eyes were closed, but she was struggling. I put my hand on the back of her neck. I told her she was going to be okay. Others came to her aid. We continued to talk to Letitia. We could feel her breathing stop and we could feel her pulse fade. A coroner's report indicated Letitia was stabbed 14 times. Lachette described Klein as being submissive when he yelled at him to get off Letitia. Klein dropped the knife, walked backwards with his hands up. There was no look of anger and that's when the principal and vice principal subdued him. The trial will continue on Tuesday. We're going to hear from a woman who says she saw Klein a couple of hours before the attack acting strangely and she followed him for a couple of blocks. We'll also hear from a Cabela's employee and that's where Crown says Klein stole a knife. In New Westminster, Grace Key, Global News. And we are learning more tonight about the final hours of a Vancouver couple found murdered in their Marpole home two years ago. Rocky Rambo Waynam Cam has pleaded not guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. Ramina Dea explains what the court is seeing in video evidence presented at trial. Businesses, buses and homes. Vancouver police collected video from over a hundred locations during an intense hunt for a suspect. The victims and the accused all captured on camera according to Crown. 
in their final hours alive. Richard Jones, who used a walker, was seen in a liquor store just after 6 p.m. on September 26, 2017. Diana Ma Jones was at dance class on the night in question. After class, she went shopping at Costco in Richmond. Based on Crown's evidence, Rocky Rambo Wayne Nam Cam is also captured on camera. Crown's theory, Cam was already in the victim's home when Ma Jones walked in around 8 p.m. Ma Jones and her husband were discovered dead in the shower stall the next day. Detective Hans Dickman told the court he was advised in October 2017 that a person of interest had been identified as a result of a purchase at Canadian Tire, which was captured on CCTV. Crown's theory, the accused purchased a hatchet, gardening gloves and a baseball hat with the intent to kill someone. Dickman told the court he connected the Canadian Tire video to several other videos obtained by police based on similarities, including race, hair color, receding temples, age, build and glasses. Under cross-examination, Dickman agreed with defense it didn't appear that Jones had been followed. The trial continues on Thursday. Ramina Dea, Global News. Right now, though, a French citizen charged in a fatal West Vancouver crash is due in court later this month. 29-year-old Sage Massey was killed on August 11th when her vehicle was hit by a van carrying French tourists on Horseshoe Bay Drive. Last month, 47-year-old Alban Kera was charged with, charged with driving without due care and attention. He's set to appear in North Vancouver Court October 30th. Massey's family says she was traveling to Squamish, her favorite place at the time of the crash. For the second time in as many weeks, questions are being raised about whether or not a cell phone resting in a car's cup holder constitutes distracted driving. A Vancouver Island man is fighting his recent ticket. Kylie Stanton has more on what happened and whether the government is doing enough to clear up the confusion. So just kind of let it sit wherever it sits in there. Face down in the cup holder, connected via Bluetooth and charging. But somehow, Josh Delgado's cell phone still managed to catch the attention of police. Just sitting there at the red light looking ahead and uh, officer knocks on my window, so I look over. Delgado was directed to pull over at this Saanich intersection. After a brief conversation with one officer, then another, he was told he had glanced in the direction of the device and was issued this ticket. It says, use electronic device while driving. So I'm stuck with a $368 fine. Four demerit points. Um, I don't know how much further we can take this. That's the question many drivers are asking, as this is the second incident in the past month. She was pretty shocked that she would receive a ticket. Vancouver police apologized and cancelled the ticket to a Richmond senior who was pulled over under similar circumstances. But in this case, Saanich police said, we have reviewed this ticket and based on the observations of the officers, the phone was being used by the driver and as a result, he was stopped and issued this ticket. Sparking outrage among critics who say BC's distracted driving laws are too confusing and open to interpretation. It isn't clear to people. It's time for the government to come out and say explicitly what they intended when they drafted this law and what they believe police officers should be ticketing on. But the government is on the defense. The law is clear that the cell phone is supposed to be mounted and it's not accessible. Uh, the police do have uh, uh, some discretion. Uh, and obviously, if people feel that, that they were ticketed unfairly, they have the ability uh, to fight that uh, in court. Delgado plans to do just that. Still, between the time, money 
and experience of it all. Delgado says the damage has been done. It's a fine demerit points and actually my reputation. That's a pretty hard pill to swallow for someone who's doing their best to not drive distracted. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. A new report which bills itself as the first of its kind reveals almost one-third of B.C. women feel their needs are not being met by the health care system. Catherine Urquhart has more on the In Her Word study and the calls for change. Lindsay McRae is happily celebrating her 37th birthday. She's optimistic about the future. But that wasn't always the case. Just wears you down to the point you just don't want to be there anymore. For 20 years, the mother of two suffered extreme pain from endometriosis, when tissue that normally lines a woman's uterus grows outside. Surrounding tissue becomes irritated, eventually developing scar tissue and lesions. Lindsay sought help dozens of times. I would tell my story over and over again and would be told that, well, you just have it rough, you have a bad period, and, um, you know, there's nothing you can do other than take ibuprofen. Lindsay's story, not uncommon, according to a new report called, in her words, women's experience with the healthcare system in BC, compiled after 1,000 BC women were surveyed by the Mostel Group. And I think that there's been this lasting belief that women are just miniature versions of men and therefore everything we understand about men's health should apply equally to women and that's clearly not the case. The survey found one in three women aren't getting their health care needs met. 83% of Indigenous women have challenges accessing medical care. And more than half the women questioned had their symptoms dismissed by a practitioner. From a researcher perspective, a better and more concerted investment in women's health research is absolutely essential. Lindsay eventually had a hysterectomy and is doing well. She's speaking out to help others, hopeful that in the future, women like her won't need to endure years of pain before getting a diagnosis. Hopefully it's a good reminder to women to speak up and advocate for yourself. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Yes. The mother of a 14-year-old boy stabbed to death outside his Ontario high school says the system failed him. Her son was killed in front of her on Monday after she says his school year had been going to hell because of bullying. A warning, some of the details in this story are disturbing. He lost all opportunities. He's never going to grow up. He's never going to get married. He's never going to know what it's like to be a father. On Monday, Sherry Ann Salvi went to Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School to pick up her son. When she arrived, she says she saw the teen was being taunted, chased, and sprayed with bear mace. She says when she tried to get him into her car, someone stabbed the boy in the back. Every time I close my eyes, it's there. So I, I don't close my eyes. A 14-year-old boy and an 18-year-old man have been arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Three others who were arrested by Hamilton police have been released without conditions. Should there be any other information that, uh, that comes to our attention as we work through this investigation, then we can always reassess. Since the teen was attacked outside of the school, there are questions as to why school administration didn't do enough to protect the grade 9 students. Sean Wagger is concerned about the bullying culture in the school. He says his son was one of Devin's friends and that they were often bullied. I'm not sending my son into a war zone again. I'm not. 
Devin stood up for himself, but he stood up for others more than he did himself. Police were at the school Wednesday speaking with students. The board says it'll conduct its own investigation into what was and wasn't done to protect the students. In terms of this specific case right now with Devin, what we'll be sharing with the police because the investigation is, is what did Devin report to the staff here and how did we respond? And the police are asking us for all that information. But that's not enough for Devin's mother. Why was I the only person that had his back? A vigil is being held this evening in memory of Selvi here at the high school that he went to. Meanwhile, funeral arrangements have been set for Saturday. Morgan Campbell, Global News. In the final two weeks before voting day, federal party leaders are hammering home key campaign commitments. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, the only leader who has yet to unveil a platform. Scheer in rural Quebec today, where thousands of asylum seekers have crossed the border from the U.S. into Canada, avoiding controlled entry points. Scheer is promising to close the safe third country agreement loophole that allows for these types of claims. But any changes must be worked out with the U.S. I believe it's in both countries' mutual benefit to have this situation uh, uh, resolved on a bilateral basis. That is our preferred option. Uh, we do believe that it is in both our countries' best interest. It is not. It does not serve uh, people who are crossing into Canada. Does not serve Canada. Does not serve the United States well to have this type of situation. Uh, Justin Trudeau was in Markham, Ontario. The Liberal leader says if he is returned to the Prime Minister's office, his first order of business will be a tax cut for the middle class. So here's our plan to keep moving forward. A re-elected Liberal government will lower taxes again for the middle class, saving the average family almost $600 every year. That matters to people. So we're going to get it done right away. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was in Montreal for a speech to CUPE, one of the country's largest unions. Singh touting his plan to crack down on tax avoidance to pay for more public services. Well, I want to put it to, to working class people this way. When it comes to the party that's going to stand up for working class people no matter what, it's New Democrats. And Green leader Elizabeth May was also in Montreal making announcements on advancing Quebec culture and promoting affordable housing. The party leaders will be making their way to Ottawa tonight in advance of Thursday's French debate. Turning to climate policy on the campaign trail, two different organizations have come to essentially the same conclusion by ranking the four federal party platforms dealing with the issue. As Ted Chernecki reports, Stand Earth and Generation Squeeze both say even the strongest environmental platforms don't go far enough. California's Santa Ana winds are starting to howl now, and this year power companies are pulling the plug. Almost a million customers are without electricity for fear downed lines could ignite catastrophic fires like last year. Eyes on the vegetation fire underneath the transmission line. It's another example of the costs that accompany a warming planet. Unsurprisingly, climate change is big in each of the federal campaign platforms. UBC's been studying them and has come up with a scorecard. We examined how the platforms proposed to be ready to use 24 different policy levers to fight climate change. And we focus on the full range of 24 levers because we can't just do one or even three things. If we want to be successful, we need to do dozens of things simultaneously and implement them over the next dozen years. As you might expect, the Green Party gets top marks, with the Liberals and NDP not far behind. The Conservatives score a distant fourth. 
In fact, the score suggests things could actually get worse because while the Tories have announced a few ideas that they will do well, it's what they've scrapped that gave them a failing grade. Most notably, take away the price on pollution, which then inhibits the market from being a really important factor in incentivizing us to move away from dirty energy sources towards the clean renewable sources. The environment group Stand Earth has also been studying each party's campaign promises, and it gives all the parties a failing grade. None of them have met the bar. Um, you know, the, the conservative plan is actually a step backwards. It would be worse than doing nothing. The liberals don't meet their own targets or even the targets set by the Harper government. And the NDP and Greens, while being better, still don't even get us to two degrees. Stand Earth goes so far as to suggest we leave our fossil fuels in the ground altogether and build a new economy designing and developing renewable energy. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Meantime, three B.C. First Nations announcing a massive agreement to tackle climate change. The Coast Timshin, the Heisla and the Nishka are aiming to replace all coal-fired plants in the world with liquefied natural gas. They've created the Northwest Coast First Nations Collaborative Climate Initiative to do it. It's a massive boost for the LNG industry here in B.C. Speaking on the John McComb Show on CKNW, the mayor of the Lax-Quilam's band, John Heelan, says the potential impact could be massive. If we could uh, replace one coal-fired plant in uh, another country, like China, that uh, the offsets for greenhouse gas emissions would be huge. And uh, if we're looking at the, the global picture on greenhouse gas emissions, mm -hmm. Why wouldn't we, uh, as sensible people, look at something like that? Former NBC Today Show host Matt Lauer is responding to new details alleging he raped a co-worker but continued a consensual affair with her. Lauer is accused of raping a former NBC colleague in his hotel room at the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics. She says the affair continued after that. The allegation is detailed in the new book Catch and Kill by investigative journalist Ronan Farrow. Lauer has penned a letter denying the accusation of rape. His former Today Show co-anchors reacted to the news. I feel like we owe it to our viewers to, to pause for a moment. Um, you know, this is shocking mm -hmm. and appalling. And um, I honestly don't even know what to say mm -hmm. about it. I want to say that we, um, I know it wasn't easy for our colleague, Brooke, to come mm -hmm. forward then. It's not easy now. Mm -hmm. And we support her and any women who have come forward with claims. And it's just very painful for all of us at NBC and who are at the Today Show. And, um, you know, it's very, very, very difficult. The book Catch and Kill delves into the alleged sexual assaults and misconduct by Harvey Weinstein, saying the former Hollywood mogul used information about Lauer's alleged crimes to keep NBC from pursuing stories about Weinstein. A harrowing rescue in eastern China where a four-year-old boy was left hanging. <laughs> Rescuers worked frantically to try to free the boy who had climbed onto a fourth floor window and then fallen through its security bars, leaving his head stuck. Firefighters fastened a security rope to the boy's chest and held onto his clothing in order to stop him from falling to the street. They used a hydraulic spreader to widen the bars and then pull the boy to safety. 
In Health Matters tonight, it is Mental Illness Awareness Week, and a UBC student athlete is encouraging those who are struggling to reach out for help. Olympian Emily Overholt battled the depths of depression to still win a bronze medal, but as Linda Aylesworth reports, that was just the start of an even bigger challenge. Emily Overholt has been swimming since she was eight years old. I really just had fun with it, especially all through high school. The final of the women's... And she continued to have fun as she transitioned to competitive swimming at the University of BC, where she became a force to be reckoned with. Overholt and Leverance almost stroke for stroke now. You've got to love what you're doing every day, otherwise it makes it pretty hard. But in 2015, when she qualified for Canada's Olympic team, it did get hard in ways she hadn't expected. Emily was tired all the time, didn't want to get out of bed. I kind of distanced myself from everyone. I wasn't really talking with my friends anymore. I would come to the pool and no smile on my face. Even when she won a bronze medal at the Rio Olympics, she felt flat. Emily was suffering from depression, and yet she kept it to herself, fearing it would make her seem weak. And it just made it so much worse, of course, just not talking to anyone and kind of burying it. One in five Canadians um, annually can experience a mental health problem or a mental illness. The Wellness Centre at UBC is dedicated to helping students like Emily. For me, the most important thing is building mental health literacy, so decrease in stigma, increasing help-seeking so people know where to go if they're struggling and how to access those resources. One invaluable resource, the online service heretohelp.bc.ca. See if you can get your legs up just a little bit. Since Emily got the help she needed, she's returned from a year-long absence to the national team and hopes to represent Canada at next year's Olympics. Just having a little bit of belief that it will get better is kind of what got me through it. And as soon as you start talking to someone, it will get better. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Looking for a unique Airbnb experience? The Goodyear airship might do the trick, but there's a catch right after the forecast. <laughs> All right, let's find out about that forecast. Hmm. So cold, but yes, there are people still getting out and having fun, clearly, Christy. That's right. We do have record cold to talk about and sensational sunsets, but I had to show you this video. This is little Cody in North Vancouver saying her rate of fall. It almost looks like uh, you're a little guy a while ago, That's Chris. Right? Yeah, it does. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, so thank you to Allison and Cody for sharing this. And it actually had me wondering. I noticed that the leaves were a little bit dull this year, and so I called an arborist in, at UBC, and he said, yes, they are. And one of the reasons are the dull September that we had, 19 days of rain. And what that means is it does create dull colors. It, it, you need that sunshine to really bring out the bright colors and a lot of the leaves are just changing right over uh, to brown. So if you're wondering that, it's not all species, that's for sure, but certainly uh, and many of them. There are some nice colors out there though. But this is the sunset tonight. Oh, it was so beautiful. Uh, temperatures are going to drop though tonight and uh, we had record lows today. One degree at the airport, breaking a record from 1960. About 10 of them across the province. Here's a few of them. Smithers minus 7, Close to minus 7 in Chetwind, Pemberton minus 3, and same for Powell River. Uh, tonight, it will get even colder in some areas, but at least 
We're not Calgary. They saw another bout of snow today. Uh, 30 centimeters reported in some parts of the province there. And that's the second time they've seen snow so far this season. So we can't complain. What we're dealing with is that strong northerly flow. It's clearing the skies and making those temperatures drop along with the fact that we don't have that cloud cover to uh, uh, keep that um, warmth in at night. But here are your lows for overnight. So wind chills on the right down to minus 11 in Prince George and Valmont. We'll see zero degrees as our low in Vancouver during the day in Enjoying sunshine, though, and tomorrow will be a touch warmer than what we saw today, and Friday will be a touch warmer still. So we are slowly warming up during the day, and we'll continue with the sunshine, but certainly staying cold at night. Over the weekend, a little bit more cloud and just a slight chance of showers, and I'll leave you with one last sunset shot for you uh, for um, our weather window, and this is King Kalith. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Niska Village in the Nass River Valley, the sunset last night. Lovely. Thank you, Christy. Awesome. A rare Airbnb will soon be taking bookings in the U.S. for a limited time only. The Goodyear airship, commonly called Goodyear Blimp, is offering overnight stays in northeast Ohio, where it's a common sight over football games. The cost, $150 a night. The sleepovers can accommodate two people, but up to four friends can hang out in the tailgate space. But here's the catch. The blimp will stay grounded since the ship is in no shape for flying. The partnership will promote college football's 150th anniversary. Not quite the same, is it? It's it if flying. it's staying grounded. <laughs> I'm just thinking. Well, if you're not a big fan of heights, <laughs> True. I'm all good. I was already calling. Yeah. No need for this thing to go up. It looks quite comfortable the way it is. Well, I mean... We all turn 50 at some point, right? <laughs> I've got a few years left. I, I have many years left. You've got a long time to go. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, we all do, really. Yeah. Uh, oh, there I will be, well, there will be lots of pomp and circumstance. Before tonight's Canucks-Kings game, 50th season, a lot of captains might be there. Captain Curtinback, Captain Smeal, Captain Sedin, Captain Morgan, Captain Crunch, <laughs> and the newest captain, who we all think is Bo Horvat. For anybody brought up in Vancouver as a Canuck fan... They understand the history of this team. It's hardwired into all our brains. And they know the 50th year is something special. I, know, I grew up a fan. I still like, kind of am a fan. Like, um, the past couple of years when you lose, like, it's not fun. It's tough mentally and on the body and the mind. Um, and obviously this organization, I think this town is kind of hungry for a winner and for a sports team that's going to have a lot of success. So... Um, with where we're at as a group, I think this could be a good time for us to kind of embrace this 50th year and kind of use it as momentum heading into the season. There's an old saying that soccer is a gentleman's game played by hooligans, while rugby is a hooligans game played by gentlemen. Yesterday, Parksville's Josh Larson was red carded in Canada's game against South Africa at the Rugby World Cup. This is why he was ticked out of the game. He went into the ruck and caught South Africa's Thomas Tatois with a shot to his neck, an illegal charge and a dangerous hit. And after checking the video, the referee decided it was deserving of a red card. But after the game, Larson stayed true to rugby's code of sportsmanship and apologized to the South African team in their dressing room. It's, it's, it's. Hey, fellas. Yeah, I just want to come in and apologize for my red card tonight. Um, yeah, pretty gutted about it, but... Um... Yeah, I just want to come and apologize to you guys face to face and uh, wish you all the best for the rest of the tournament.
And they thanked him with a beer. I like that. They want him to chug it, is yeah. what they're chanting. Believe it or not, the BC Lions still have a playoff chance, and the mathematics are quite simple. Win every game that's left, hope Edmonton loses all of its games. Probability of that happening, still very low. However, BC does play Edmonton on Saturday. The Eskimos are struggling right now, and we haven't said this very much, the Lions are not. Pressure coming. Riley stands in. Yes, as a matter of fact, BC Lions fans saw that and maybe, just maybe, a playoff berth on the horizon. Leo serving notice with their fourth straight victory that at 5-10, and 10, they still have life left in them, perhaps maybe even playoff life. There's a strong belief on this football team right now, yes? I mean, that's what, that's what winning does and confidence does for sure, but there's also, you know, I think the understanding of the task at hand and that... Uh, you know, we're not far removed from losing football games, so, you know, we got to stick with what's gotten us the, you know, the winning formula. Riley looking around. Anybody open? BC's best football of the season has come against Eastern opponents. And while it's true only Montreal sports a record above 500, you can't dismiss another fact, which is the Lions are playing their most consistent football on both sides of the line of scrimmage right now. It's more of the... The, the understanding of what we're doing systematic-wise and scheme-wise, that the understanding has grown. So now that's confident is where they know what they're doing and not second-guessing, is this guy going to be here? And also the trust of knowing that everybody knows it. Instead of when you're plugging and playing, you're still trying to develop that week in and week out from guys not accustomed to playing with each other. And we've had a solid lineup throughout the course of this little run we're on, so we understand it as well. The playoff math is simple for B.C., beat Edmonton on Saturday and then win their final two games, then hopefully see the Eskimos lose their final two. That happens and the Leos are playoff bound. Is this team capable and will this team win three straight to sneak into the playoffs? I mean, we are, we are capable of winning uh, three games in a row. The point is, is doing it. I mean, you can't talk about it. You got to go out and do it. I mean, anybody can say they're the best, but, you know, do they show it? Do they walk the walk and talk the talk? Seven and one. And now, is ten and one. That includes Mike Fultonevich and the Braves' 26 minutes of hell. First inning deciding game against the Cardinals. That is a single by Marcelo Zuna. It's one nothing. Then this walk makes it two nothing. This is all in the first inning. Then this double makes it four nothing. They change pitchers. Max Fried comes in, walks in a run, then gives up this double, and it's seven nothing. And then Colton Wong doubles, and it's nine nothing. Mercy rule. And then, just to finish things off, a wild pitch, and it's 10-0. Ten runs in the first with no homers. And St. Louis wins the series three games to two. There are some around who believe we should be celebrating the 53rd anniversary of the Vancouver Canucks. But really, it's 50th. Yeah, they should have been in the league in 1967. We'll do a deal with that. Oh, October 9th, 1970, first Canuck game. Weird stat. Also the... Uh, birthday of Annika Sorenstam. That's when she was born. Oh, Golfing really? legend. Yeah. Why did I throw that in? I have no idea. Here we go. <laughs> this is the original Vancouver Canuck program from game one. I guess it's quite valuable now. Friday, October 9th, 1970. That was the Canucks first ever NHL game. And as you can imagine, it was quite a big deal. Premier W.A.C. Bennett and his son and future Premier Bill were there politician Arthur Lang, who the bridge is now named after, and NHL President Clarence Campbell. They even had a Miss Canuck contest. Robin Collier was the winner. And Jim Robson was there doing play-by-play. 
And this is my game note summary from the first ever game. A very dull 3-1 loss to the LA Kings. The Canucks are part of the second NHL expansion with Buffalo, three years after the city was denied entry in the first wave of expansion. The Vancouver fans were so upset when the Canucks did not get included that they had to show their displeasure in some way, so they attacked the sponsors of Hockey Night in Canada and they cut their ESO credit cards in half. And they also stopped drinking Molson beer because Molson's owned the Montreal Canadiens and really? we'll fix them. And it did have an effect. So not too long after, uh, the NHL announced the next expansion will include Vancouver. The response was tremendous. Uh, it's obvious that Vancouver should have been one of the expansion teams. And, uh, and uh, boy, the, the people come right out and, uh, and support the club right away. Among the differences from Game 1 50 years ago as opposed to Game 1 in 2019, you could smoke in the arena, but you couldn't drink. Oh, yes, yeah. No, no beer, no beer, but there was lots of cigarettes. Six, fly five. You could not drink, but you could smoke. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, that's these were in 1970. <laughs> one thing that is familiar from Game 1 for pessimistic Canuck fans they lost, and they only scored one goal. Sound familiar? Let's hope the next 50 years is a lot better. And that was Barry Wilkins. If you're all wondering, he scored the first ever Canucks goal. Is that right? Yep. <laughs> next 50's got a cup in it. Come on. And it has to. And Jim still sounds like he's I know. in the broadcast booth. Yeah. And I agree. I would love to have Jim and Tom do one game this year. Be great. Right. Do one. Really all right. Beautiful sunset. Oh, wow. Wow. Thanks for watching. Have a good night. Good Cold night. Cold tonight.